We're in the midst of a series this summer on the parables of some of the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and we started with the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the question is asked, uh, who is my neighbor, or how do we prove to be neighbor to those that are around us? And we come today to the parable of the Lazarus, the poor man, and, and the rich man. And as we're thinking about that word of admonishing us and inviting us to neighbors uh, to one another, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man sets that discussion up in terms of a kind of an introductory line. And it's, it's kind of like the lines in those jokes that you hear that start out, there's a priest, a rabbi, and a Presbyterian minister who go into the bar. You know, I mean, it, it's, it gets set up like that. I know I was recently walking with my dog, guide dog Bren, along the Edmonds waterfront, which is where I do that. And off, you know, part of the reason I do that is because we encounter lots of dogs and lots of people. And so it's a great training place for a guide dog puppy. And this man came up to me the other day and he said, can I tell you a, the joke of the month? And yeah, I'm, of course, first thinking, so how long is this going to take? And how much is it going to cost me? Uh, and then I said, sure, go ahead, tell the joke of the month. And he says, an Irishman left the bar and he walks away. <laughs> and I started laughing because, you know, the Irishman is always in the bar and stays there in those jokes. But he told this joke and I just thought, wow, that's, that's hilarious. He says, ah. This is great. You're the 15th person that's laughed today. <laughs> Just walks on. So, um, but my point is, is that there are setup lines that you have, that you anticipate what's coming next. And Jesus tells this parable with one of those setup lines about a rich man and a poor man and uses that context, this familiar context to kind of make a point about things that we see and things that we don't see and to ask us the question, what happens if we actually notice? So let's look at that parable. It's in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate, lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. And he said, then, Father, I beg you, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, 
that he may warn them so that they will not come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. You join me in prayer. Lord, we pray what we always pray, which is help us to see, but help us also to act on what we see and to respond to the truth that you impart, to be people who understand and reflect your love because we have been loved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this parable has an interesting kind of geography to it. You have the rich man in his house feasting on sumptuous foods, and you have Lazarus just outside this man's house in his gate, quite literally. And it triggered a memory of scenes from a book that I read not too long ago by an author, Octavia Butler, and it's, it's, the book is called A Parable of the Sower, and Octavia Butler actually died here in Lake Forest Park. She grew up and worked most of her life in Pasadena, California, and then toward the end of her life moved up here, and I don't know her dates, but it hasn't been too long that she, uh, since she's died, but she wrote this book, Parable of the Sower, and it tells the story. It's She's kind of a fantasy writer in some ways, but she's really telling the story of kind of a post-apocalyptic Los Angeles, uh, Southern California, and a picture of, of very deep class divides that exist in this futurized version of, of LA and, and deep uh, polarization with this shrinking middle class. And in this world, everyone but the poor are living in walled or fenced or, or gated communities that have high security systems. And, and what's happening, as Butler tells the story, is that the middle class communities are beginning to be attacked by the drug addicted poor who light their communities, these middle class communities on fire and loot the buildings. And, and what she describes is a place where the middle class begin working for the upper class because it's the only place they can be safe behind the citadels that the upper class can afford because the government systems have failed and police no longer exist for the middle class and you have to pay for everything, including water. She understands the future of Southern California quite well, I think, uh, as she writes about it, especially that, that absence of water thing. And so the rich live in this virtual citadel where they are safe. She tells the story of a 17-year-old girl who gathers a group with her who have uh, recently been made homeless by one of these attacks, and they start a foot trek up 101 to the Pacific Northwest where they can get free water. It's a really interesting book. It's hard to read, by the way. It's it's sort of, as my daughter-in-law says uh, at certain points, kind of oppression porn, uh, if you will. It's the, you know, where you, there's so much oppression going on that, you know, it's like you can't stop reading and you keep reading. Uh, you don't want to read, you know. So, but, so I'm, I'm just giving you a fair warning about this book. I know Dorothy Mulkey has read it. Is Dorothy here today? So, so talk to Dorothy about it, our, our librarian. She can give you a good review, right? Did you finish it, Dorothy? Okay, good, good. So, 
I think what we've got, you know, in Octavia Butler's picture, we've, we've got a, a kind of grasp of some of the same sort of imagery and themes that uh, and situation that are that are kind of going on in this picture. It's the theme of of insecurity and security and quite frankly, the insecurity of some of our security systems <laughs> that we're not as safe as we think we are. Sometimes in our ways of insulating ourselves from trouble, we actually get into trouble. And what happens when we finally notice what we have failed to notice is part of what this parable is all about. There's kind of three descriptions of great divides in this parable, three great divides that are described, and all three are about really the one great divide that exists for all of us, irrespective of our, our income or our class status or other things that might categorize us, but it's that great divide between God and us. And the challenge to wake up to the question of whether or not we will live our lives in light of that great organizing relationship of which we're all a part, whether we recognize it or not, but that great organizing relationship that we were created as children of our creator. It's the great unifier amidst all of the other things that divide us. And the first divide that's described here is the obvious one, and it's the divide between rich and poor. The story that Jesus tells here is set in a context where Luke has reminded us a little bit earlier as Jesus has been teaching about money. Luke reminds us that the Pharisees were lovers of money. That's in a couple of verses before this story starts. So the Pharisees, once again, are the identified patients of this particular parable. The religious, those who both themselves and others acknowledge to be the most righteous. Luke says the Pharisees, now the Pharisees were lovers of money and Part of what Jesus is pointing out here is that money is not a reward for righteousness. And it's the message that Jesus continually sends over and over again. The fact is, as Jesus is pointing out here, is something that he says elsewhere, the poor you will always have with you, the rich you will, you will always have for you. This is just a common divide. The rich will always be around, the poor will always be around, this is a divide that just is. So don't be so quick to assume that your wealth is a sign that you are secure. There's a great reversal in the kingdom of God that Jesus talks about where the exalted will be humbled and the humbled will be exalted. And clearly this is a, a picture of that reversal that he's speaking of. So that first divide is the divide between rich and poor. The second divide is the divide perhaps between heaven or hell, if you can refer to them in those way, or the divide between the insiders and the outsiders that we set up for ourselves, the blessed and, and the cursed. And I think the message of the parable is don't be too sure that you belong and will always remain in your assumed category in the kingdom of God. Part of the security we create for ourselves always is the security of religion. You know, that God is on our side mentality, that I can feel more secure if I have a theology that tells me that I'm an insider. And a lot of church history is about proving that we have that theology and you don't. 
And so when we feel that security that we're an insider and that we belong, that we're on the right side, again, Jesus has the Pharisees in mind here. Don't be so sure that you belong to the in crowd. We're a part of a bigger category than the categories that you have set up for yourself. And then the third divide, I think, is really the point of the parable. It's the divide between seeing and, and not seeing and something else that we all know. Lazarus is unseen by the rich man. The rich man doesn't even know that Lazarus is in his gate. And Lazarus can only see all that he does not have and never expects to have any more than what he has. His imagination cannot extend to anything bigger than getting the crumbs off of the rich man's table. He is in some ways blinded by his poverty in the same way that the rich man is blinded by his wealth. And then the great reversal happens. The rich man sees what he hadn't seen before and now realizes that others need to be told and acts as if no one ever told me. So he appeals to Abraham, send Lazarus, first of all, to, to relieve my pain. And he says, oh, that can't happen. He says, well, then send somebody to my father's house that my brothers can know what's in store for them if, if they don't wake up and, and begin to see. And Abraham responds, they've already been told. For thousands of years, they've been told. They have Moses and the prophets to wake them up. And the rich man says, well, yes, yes, uh, but maybe a more potent message is needed. Lazarus returning from the dead might be a good one to warn them that what I'm suffering. And then you have the punchline of the parable. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus alluding to his own resurrection. I think the point of this parable is the action point of so much of Jesus' teaching, as well as the teaching of, of Moses and the prophets, for that matter. The action point is that invitation to wake up. The action point is that sense of how do you build awareness? How can you notice? Because the insularity you've created, the wall of security that you've built blinds you to the truth. And those walls ultimately are not strong enough to protect us. And we all, in the final analysis, stand naked and hungry before God. And that truth makes everyone our neighbor. The kind of allusion to Hades in this parable makes me think of what I think is the best description of hell in literature. You know, most of what we know about heaven and hell is not in the Bible, it's in literature. It's, it's um, the reflections of Dante on what hell is actually like, you know, or the, in this case, it's the reflection of C.S. Lewis about what hell is actually like in his book, The Great Divorce. And he calls this vision of hell the, the dull gray city of the, with the eternal hope of mourning. That's the way he introduces it. And the, it's the place where people keep moving farther and farther out from the center of the city because they can't stand being near each other. And so they establish this insularity among and create a kind of, of isolation. And eventually, 
that insularity is all about self-protection and not being bothered. And, and what Lewis ultimately is pointing to is that hell is something that we create and something that we choose. It's not some place that we are sent. It's a, a place of, of choosing not to see, a place, therefore, that is without neighbors. And like I said, the parable ends with an allusion to the resurrection of Jesus and that sadly negative prediction that even that will not turn all hearts to God and kind of tacitly repeating the message of Moses and the prophets, wake up, wake up and take notice. And it begs a question, I think for us today, and that is, will the resurrection of Jesus open our eyes or not? For if we're following the resurrected Christ, the one in whom all things cohere, the one to whom all creation belongs, as Paul sings in the book of Colossians, we have no choice if we're following this Lord of all, but to open our eyes and ears to the signs of his presence in the everyday and observable world in which we live right now. To take in and respond to both the joys and the pains of our world in the confidence that both our joys and our pains are in the hands of the one who holds all things together. To open our eyes to what is lying just beyond our gates, therefore, it isn't always easy to take that in, by the way. It might feel easier to just not notice. For the burden we might feel in becoming aware of our neighbor's pain often feels like it's way too big to bear. And I understand that and participate in that willingness to not see pretty much every time I get on the freeway. But here's the thing, there's one who is holding us, who bears us, one whose love, in fact, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let's pray. Lord, help us to find the freedom of knowing that we belong to you as does the rest of creation and to rest in the knowledge that even when something feels too big for us to hold, that you are still holding us all together. Give us a picture of what it means to act concretely on that knowledge, that freedom, that confidence that comes the, through the truth that you are Lord that you bear all things, that we are free to participate in the work that you are doing. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.